Well, hey, everybody. So good to see you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Troy. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm usually upstairs in one of the classrooms on Sunday morning teaching uh, West Side Essentials. And um, in our Q&A series, somehow I managed to get the uh, sex talk. <laughs> Coincidentally, my wife and I and our family, we have been here for 18 years on October 1st. And, yeah. So given the subject of the day, it's been a great run, been great knowing you. Um, <laughs> sayonara. No, um, truly, I, I just want to tell you, we love this community, we love this church, and I'm so privileged to get to talk to you about something like this today, which is so important and complex and volatile and sensitive and all of the things that come along with the talk. But when we talk about Christian sexuality and what it is for us as Christ followers to show to the best of our ability fidelity to Scripture and uh, to follow Jesus in every conceivable aspect of our life. So we want you to know, if maybe you're not a Christ follower today or you're, you're challenged today in exploring, like, what do you believe about your sexuality and all of the messages they're getting everywhere you go in this world, we want you to know that this is a great place for you to be. If you're exploring your faith, if you're trying to figure out what you think about your own sexuality, that this is a terrific place for you to be. And we want you just out of the gate, we want you to understand that Jesus is for everyone. He is for you. Whether you're struggling with, uh, with gender dysphoria, whether you're gay, straight, pan, bi, whether you have a sexually promiscuous history, what, wherever you're at, Jesus is for you. And we want you to know that we are here to help that we want to point you in the direction of the Savior who has got more life for you and not less. And I wish I could sit knee to knee with everybody here and just have a one-on-one -on -one conversation because in some ways these things are pretty simple and pretty clear and in other ways they're enormously complex and everyone here has got a story. Everyone has an experience. Everyone has a context in which they're trying to live these things out. And um, I would just to say I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do want to point you in the direction where you can find hope and healing in Jesus. And so we're just really glad to know that you're here. And we want you to know that love is the context for this conversation. <laughs> so whether we agree or we disagree about these things, I want you to know that we can still be in a relationship and journey towards Jesus together. And talking about Jesus, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, the author says this, the word became flesh, the word, that is Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's the deal. Jesus, who is the embodiment of love, is full of both grace and truth. And I think there's a story in that same gospel that exemplifies this grace and truth dynamic in Christ. In a beautiful way, there is a woman in John chapter 8, and she is caught literally in the act of adultery. In other words, she's sleeping with a man who is not her husband. And as she's caught in that act, she understands that the... the um, the punishment for this could be death by stoning. And she's drug across Jerusalem to the temple. And you can imagine how terrified she is. And she's brought before the religious leaders. And they literally have rocks in their hands ready to kill her. And Jesus is on the scene. And he's doing something. He's writing something in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. I think he kind of wrote, you guys are a bunch of losers. Something like that. <laughs> but he, he says, hey, you know what? Uh, which one of you who is without sin cast the first stone? And one by one, they drop their rocks and they leave. 
And then Jesus turns to her and says, he straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus is full of grace, not condemnation. And he's got clarity about what is true. Go and leave your life of sin. So my prayer is that as we talk about this, that we speak about it in terms of compassion, that we are speaking from a place of love, but we are also speaking from a place of clarity and conviction without condemnation. Now, I know sometimes we're reluctant to talk about these things because some of you have a past. Some of you have a history. You have a story. You have some regrets and maybe some things that you're ashamed of that have happened in your history. And you don't like talking about these things in church because it kind of brings it up for you and maybe it makes you feel more condemned. I just want you to know we're not trying to make you feel poorly about anything. But what we are trying to do is to give people enough clarity so that they won't have the same regrets that you have that they won't have to make the same choices, that they won't have to repeat the same patterns that cause so much wreckage in your own life. So at the risk of making you feel poorly, let us look towards our sons and our daughters, our little brothers and our little sisters with compassion and help them not make the same choices that have given us so much uh, regret. So Jesus gives us his view on marriage and sexuality very clearly in Matthew chapter 19. This is what he says. He's talking to a bunch of religious leaders, and they actually ask him, they're quizzing him about marriage and divorce, and this is what Jesus says. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And just to say out loud, Jesus didn't talk about a lot of things. He didn't talk about pornography. He didn't talk about crack. He didn't talk about pedophilia. He didn't talk about a lot of different topics or every conceivable aberration of his intent for us. But what he does is he clearly tells us what sex is meant for in the context of marriage. And he gives us the created intention for human sexuality. And this is how God has made us. This is how you and I are designed to flourish. This is, this is his desire for us. And Jesus takes us right back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. And he says it like this. He, he, he's quoting Genesis. He says, then God said from Genesis 1, let us make mankind in our image, right? We are made in the image and in the likeness of God so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all creation that moves along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And in chapter 2, it says this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is the historic Judeo-Christian view of marriage and sexuality. And so just to, just to give you a bit of a definition, there's a lot of ways to approach this, but this is the one we're working with here today. Marriage is the lifelong one flesh covenant union between a biological male and biological female from different families, united before God, family, and friends as a reflection of God's love, faithfulness, and creativity. Right? That's a mouthful. But this is how we are designed to flourish in regards to our sexuality. This is the container for sex as God has 
designed it. And it is something beautiful and profound. And it is a picture of so many wonderful things. And in his design, sex is something that is blessed by the one who created it. And everything outside of that boundary, everything outside of that intention, misses the mark. In the New Testament, the word for missing the mark, in Greek, it's hamartia, right? Which is, gets translated to sin in our New Testament. Hamartia equals missing the mark, which is sin. So if we understand this biblical definition of sexuality in marriage, we get this. The lifelong covenant marriage between a biological man and biological woman is the God-designed container for human sexuality. And if you understand that, it really answers most of our questions when we come to the table with this. Let this be our guide. Let this be the biblical understanding as Christ followers of the intentionality behind sex. So, you guys asked a bunch of questions that we're trying to address, so it's your fault, okay? Um, <laughs> So one of the questions that came up is, why is pornography a problem? Now, most of you in here probably don't need to be convinced that porn is a problem. But uh, we may not all understand the gravity of its effect on our society. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is talking always about the thing behind the thing, the why behind the what. And it's not this arbitrary line in the sand. He, he, Jesus is trying to protect us. He's trying to point us in the direction of our design that is most healthy for us as humans made in the image of God. So as we talk about pornography, I just want to give you a couple of numbers. Some of you guys like statistics and observations. So apart from just the moral, ethical implications as a Christ follower of sex outside of marriage and in the context of looking at pornography as something that, that is a problem as a Christ follower, here's the data that we have. So in adults, porn consumption is related to sexual dysfunction, specifically the inability to perform sexually with a real-life partner. It has a strong negative association with marital quality and commitment to one's romantic partner. And it's been associated strongly with, uh, with cons consumption and sexual abuse. So from the Journal of American Medical Association, this is what it says in a survey uh, or some studies done in 2014, we found a significant negative association between reported pornography hours per week and gray matter volume. It's saying it inhibits your neurological brain development. And research in the United States has shown that 66% of men and 41% of women consume pornography on a monthly basis. An estimated 50% of all internet traffic is related to sex. So these, these statistics, they illustrate that pornography is no longer like part of some minority population. It is pervasive. It's a mass phenomenon that is influencing our society. And just this last year, in a uh, survey reported by CNN, it tells us that kids are being introduced to pornography at a younger and younger age. A national survey of more than 1,300 teens tells us this. The average kid, or the average age kids first saw online pornography was 12 years old, with some 15% seeing it by age 10 or younger. 73% of all teenagers in the United States are exposed to pornography. Are exposed to pornography. That is an enormous number, three-quarters of our teens. Eight in 10 teens who watched porn said they did so to learn how to have sex. Let that sink in. 
and more than half said they have, that they have seen porn that includes depictions of rape, choking, and someone in pain. And this is where our, our kids are saying they're learning about their sexuality. I have a really good friend of mine whose marriage years ago was destroyed uh, by his pornography use. And he had married this wonderful girl. She was really great, but she just, he was unwilling to stop. He was unwilling to get help. And eventually she couldn't just, uh, she couldn't take it anymore. And she left because she felt like he was constantly being cheated on, constantly being told that she was not enough. So there are obviously some big problems with pornography, and it negatively impacts our neurological development, it negatively impacts our sexual development, and our relational development. So it's no wonder that God, who's about giving you and I more life, is trying to steer us away from this. In 1 Peter, Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, that is, Christ followers who are not of this world, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Porn is a toxic poison in your life, and it distorts everything that is good and holy and wholesome and joyful about your sexuality. God is always trying to give you something good, and Satan is always trying to destroy it, always. This is the milieu. This is the world that you and I live in. That's why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality, all other sins, a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And when we indulge our lust in this way, what we're doing is we're dehumanizing ourselves and this other person. We're reducing other people to a commodity. And we're, we're, what we're doing is we're saying this is not a person, this is a product to be consumed as opposed to a person to be respected. But they are a person. They are an image bearer of the living God Worthy of respect, love, and dignity. And so our sexuality is to be respected and protected. Yours as well as that other person. We, do, we don't consume another image bearer for our short-term gratification. So parents, this starts with you. Our job is to protect the innocence of our kids for as long as we possibly can. These things are too heavy for a child to bear. And as we've seen, this will distort their view of themselves, distort their view of sex, distort their view of the opposite sex in ways that are extraordinarily damaging. And that means we cannot let our kids have unfettered access to the internet. I'm not just talking about porn sites or OnlyFans. I'm talking about your Netflix view. I'm talking about Amazon. I'm talking about Apple. I'm talking about all these things that are, might, they might not be considered pornography, but they're they're, they're just as equally sexually damaging and triggering. And so Westside is offering resources to help you. If, you're, if your kids are in danger of this kind of thing, we have a class coming up from Sunflower House called Keeping Kids Safe Online about child internet safety. If you're an adult who's struggling with um, perhaps a sexual addiction, we have Freedom Casey. It's one of our care groups that we offer here, as well as a, a group on sexual purity and integrity called Clean. And you can find these resources at westsidefamily.church care, and there should be some links and some books and some other resources, podcasts and things in the sermon notes there for you to, if you want to get more information about these things later on, you can look those up. So another question that came up. Um, got, got texted into us a little bit ago. It says this, does Westside support the LGBTQ community? This is a, this is a big topic. 
and um, Randy and I tried to address this to some degree in, um, in the podcast, the Westside podcast that we did just a little bit ago. But when you say, does Westside support the LGBTQ community? What does support mean? Okay, so here's, here's where we're coming out here. What does Jesus have to say? He says this in Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So our posture is this, to love your neighbor. Love your gay neighbor, love your straight neighbor, love your pan neighbor, love your trans neighbor, love your atheist neighbor, love, love your obnoxious neighbor, love your neighbor whose dog poops on your lawn. Um, I'm that neighbor, by the way. Uh, God is calling us to love one another. And, and the people who are most unlike us, we are called to love. He even calls us to love our enemies. So, and as a church, I gotta tell you, this is our heart's desire is to reflect the love of Jesus to people so that they come into a relationship with the one who can actually do something meaningful in their lives. But we are going to do this imperfectly. I'm gonna teach this message imperfectly. I'm gonna have blind spots. There's a situation. You have a personal story. You have a friend. You have, you have, there's a lot of whatabouts that we can't deal with thoroughly in, the, in this context here. But I want you to know our heart's desire is that you know the love of Christ and that in all of our different ways, we're growing and learning to reflect that love more and more and more as we mature and grow up in him. And so, yes, we will do this imperfectly, but we want you to know we want you to be here. We want you to pursue Jesus in the context of this community of a bunch of messed up, broken people. If the world wants to tell you that, that the fundamental nature of human beings is good, and the scripture tells us that the fundamental nature of human beings is broken, the world is gonna tell you that if you just drill down to, your, to find your truest self at the core of the core of the core of who you are, you're gonna find your innate goodness and what scripture tells us is that you're gonna drill down upon layer upon layer upon layer trying to find your truest self and you're gonna find more and more brokenness. You're gonna find more and more need for a savior to make you whole. And that includes all of us in this room. So yes, do we support the LGBTQ com uh, community? Of course we do. We want them to come into the relationship with Jesus who wants to bring them more life and more healing and more wholeness and more purpose. But if support means agreeing with, with, with a, a way of looking at sexuality that says that gay marriage is exactly the same as straight marriage, if it means agreeing that a trans woman is in every way exactly the same as a biological woman, if it means that a child can self profess that they are in the wrong body and immediately be medicalized for that. I'm gonna say, no, we don't agree on these things. And it's not out of spite, and it's not out of outrage, and it's not out of hate. It's because love is full of both grace and truth. And the grace and truth of Jesus is what will restore us to our design. So love and agreement aren't the same thing. And we're not coming from a moral high ground, right? We are all sinners. The scripture says, for all of sin, I've fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, everyone in this room, 
I tell you what, all, our, all of us, our sexuality has been distorted by sin. Me, you, your mother, your father, your grandma, and your grandpa. My grandma? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Grandma. Good to see you. Um, yes, because sin has penetrated every aspect of what it is to be a human being. Your mind, your emotions, your, your social relationships, your physicality, and your sexuality. In every way, it has been distorted and broken by sin, and in every way, it can be healed and restored by the love of a Savior. That's our heart here today. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, it says this, to clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I pray that you hear this, that we're not coming from a moral high ground. We're coming from a position of one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And we want you to know, know the hope and the faith and the love that is found in Jesus. So yes, we hold to God's design for the historic Judeo-Christian view of marriage and sexuality. That's why Westside doesn't do same-sex marriages. We do not believe it is God's original plan for human flourishing. It is missing the mark, right? Homosexual behavior is a sin. But you know what? So is gossip, so is greed, so is envy, so is arrogance, right? And if we, if we were to say, okay, well, if you struggle with gossip, greed, envy, arrogance, and, and, and as well as same-sex attraction, well, you can't be here. We would empty the room. No one else, no, this room would be, just be Jason, our sound guy, because he's awesome back there. <laughs> be the only one left in this place. So just to say this, same-sex attraction isn't the sin. It is a temptation, the sin is when we attempt to rationalize, normalize, and repeatedly act on the temptation. That's whether you're gay or straight or whatever it is. The point is, is what we're, what we're doing in our words and our actions, we're declaring something to be right, which God is clearly says is not in his plan. It is out of bounds. So does being gay send you to hell? Well, no. Any more than being straight sends you to heaven. I happen to know this. And we get in real trouble when we decide to try to do God's job of determining what is right and what is wrong, or we let public sentiment decide for us what is right and what is wrong. So here we come back to this. This is the original lie, right, that we hear in the garden. This is uh, from Genesis chapter 3. So it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the lie, that God can't be trusted and he is not for you. And that affects everything. It says God is somehow, he's holding out on you. He's trying to keep something good from you that you deserve and that you want. And, he's, and, and you have to look out for yourself. You have to take it into your own hands. So it leads me to this. And this is, this is going to be a tough one for a lot of us, right? But whew, grace and truth, right? Sex before marriage. A lot of questions come in about this. 
And this, all of these things we've been talking about translate to our view of sexuality. God is holding out on us. He doesn't want us to enjoy sex whenever we want it. He's just got some sick pleasure in denying us. And as we established earlier, God's design for sex is between a biological male and female in a covenant relationship for life before God and men. Everything outside of that God-ordained container is sin. Now, the word in the New Testament for this is a Greek word called porneia, right? That should sound familiar. It's the root of our word pornography. And it's translated, and depending on what Bible translation you look at, as fornication or sexual immorality. Now, Jesus uses it here in Matthew 15. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. That's the word porneia that Jesus uses there. And Paul uses the same word here in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So this Greek word porneia, this is, it's important to understand this. Porneia is first century Judaism as a catch-all word for all sexual behavior outside of covenant marriage. And this includes living together even if you're engaged. And what's become more and more common today is that couples insist on living together with the rationale, I mean, and it kind of makes sense that like we're kind of trying this out. We're gonna see if we're compatible. We see if we're sexually compatible, relationally compatible. I gotta tell you, and I'm not trying to be trite, but you are sexually compatible with millions and millions and millions of other people. <laughs> Sex isn't the issue, okay? And you wanna say that we're, we're, trying to, we're trying this thing out. We're test driving our relationship. But I gotta tell you, the data is in and it does not look good. People who've been doing this for quite a while, now we've got some good numbers. It, rather than being practiced for marriage success, cohabitation appears to be practiced for marriage failure. In the Journal of Psychology, uh, Family Psychology says this, those who cohabited before engagement, 43.1%, reported lower marital satisfaction, dedication, and confidence, as well as more negative communication and greater proneness for divorce. In another study in 2019, it says this, although many believe that living together before marriage will lower their odds of divorce, there is no evidence that this is, a general, this is generally true and a lot of evidence that it is not true. Couples who lived together before marriage were 48% more likely to divorce than couples who moved in together after being engaged or married. So, and this is from the University of Denver, and it just makes sense, you know? You test drive a car. You don't test drive a person. When you test drive a car, the car doesn't know if you're buying it or not. The car is ambivalent, right? The car, the car doesn't perform any differently whether you hold a pink slip or not. But another person responds differently. Another person is not to be test driven. Another person knows that this is not a commitment, this is not a covenant, this is not permanent. So how can it be the same? So we think we're practicing and what we're getting is a false sense of intimacy because there's no real commitment. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be, be unkind, okay, but when, when we decide that we're going to live together, what we're, really what we're saying is, for now, you're the best person I've found to be with. But I reserve the right to conveniently get out of this relationship so that someone better come along. And in that context, you're not test driving reality. You're test driving something else. 
And Jesus is trying to save you from the wreckage and regret and shame. He's trying to give you something better. I just say this, that sex on the wedding night is meant to be a seal. It's meant to be the consummation of two people becoming one. Two people who were two different people now are one flesh, one life. You are vulnerable in every way, vulnerable in your relational status. You're vulnerable emotionally. You're vulnerable uh, financially. You're vulnerable legally. You're vulnerable in every conceivable way because you are now one. You are not two. And that, that sex on that marriage night is the seal of that oneness. God is always trying to give you more life, abundant life. And the enemy is always trying to distort it and destroy that gift. And some of you have been making these kinds of choices and you're living with the fallout. You're living with the regret. You're living with the hurt that has come along with it. <coughs> Maybe even some shame associated with it. And I want to tell you this. God wants to restore you. He wants to give you something better. First John 1 uh, John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All the shame, all the regret, all the hurt. And he wants to take that on himself. And you can have a new step forward. You can have new life in him. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says this. Some of these people, these are people who had just become Christians. He says um, they had lived in all these different ways, these immoral ways. They had, and, he, and he puts things like gossip and slander and envy all alongside the sexual behavior. And he says this. This is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Let me tell you this. Your past is not your identity. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were not defined by your shame. You were not defined by your regret. And you were not defined by your desire. You were made new in Christ. Your identity is not in a political ideology, not in a sexual ideology, not in a sexual desire or proclivity or a dysphoria. Your identity is in Jesus. Let him change that. Let him inform every component of your life. Let him redeem it and bring healing to it. Let him make you whole. Go to Jesus and bring everything to him. Your struggle, your sins, he's waiting to receive you where you are. Find a mentor or a spiritual friend, somebody who is safe that you can talk about these things with. Cultivate a real relationship in a Christ-following community who are all pursuing to the best of their ability they're pursuing Jesus together. And be intentional with things like screens and social media and the inputs, to those things that you will allow into your heart and into your mind. And spend regular time in Scripture. We know God's voice by knowing God's word. So the Apostle Paul, he says this. He says, don't conform anymore to the patterns of this world. The patterns of values the sexual patterns, the chaos, the confusion, the distortion, the animosity, the hostility, the hurt, the shame. Don't conform to those patterns anymore, but repent. Turn from them and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So you will know the will of God, the will of the one who loves you, who is trying to infuse more life and more wholeness into you. He's not trying to take it away from you. He's trying to protect you from the chaos and the hurt. So turn away from the patterns of the world 
and let your mind be renewed in Christ. Let him do something in you. Let's pray together. So God, we come to you right now and uh, feeling like <laughs> we've, we've moved really fast and we hit a lot of different things and I don't feel like we talked about them very sufficiently, but Jesus, we're asking that you redeem the time that you meet people in their stories, you meet them in their hurts, you meet them in their hearts. And as Christ followers, we are people that are not known by our outrage, Lord, but we are known by outrageous love. And that you are in the work of redeeming and making us more like yourself all the time. I pray where there is hurt, you bring healing. I pray where there is regret, you bring wholeness. I pray you guard and guide our young people in the name of Jesus. Protect them from the winds of culture that war against their souls. And help them to find their identity in you and in you alone. We offer all this time, Lord, and we're trusting you with the consequences. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.